Hi there, and welcome to Stock Club, a podcast brought to you by My Wall Street. I'm James, and joining me on today's episode are Mike and Anne Marie from the My Wall Street Analyst teams. This week, we're talking about the potential for a partnership between ESPN and DraftKings, the big thing investors need to watch out for this holiday season, and Mike pitches us another cybersecurity company that he's very bullish on. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So guys, over the past few episodes of Stock Club, you've probably heard us mention Horizon a couple of times. And in particular, the recent Horizon members meetup we had here in Dublin, where a whole bunch of us got together in a room for an evening and chatted about investing along with our special guest, Bill Mann from The Motley Fool. We've had a lot of questions into the podcast since then asking us about Horizon and how you can go along to the next one of these Horizon meetups. We've got a couple planned for next year already. So we're kicking off the pod this week with just a little quick chat about Horizon and how you can get involved with Horizon if you want. So as if you don't know already, Horizon is our premium service run here at My Wall Street. It's run by Emmett, who's our chief investment officer. Uh, he's the target to grow um, the value of the Horizon portfolio 10x in 12 years. So if you sign up to Horizon, essentially what you're doing is you're getting access to Emmett's personal growth portfolio as he tries to hit this 10x target in 12 years. Currently, there's a library about 32 active stock pitches in Horizon. These are the companies that Emmett is really excited about right now and some of which he's already invested in. Each of these pitches come with a video pitch from Emmett and an executive summary as well of why Emmett thinks this company can grow multiple fold from today's level. On top of that, you also get a view of every investment Emmett has made with his money since 2019, both public and private companies. You also get free tickets to all of our future meetups. As I mentioned, there's a couple planned for next year already, Uh, as well as access to an active online community of other members, buy alerts from Emmett, weekly emails from Emmett, and loads of other great stuff. So look, I know kind of the world of investing at the moment is quite bizarre, but it's a matter of historical fact that the best investments are usually made in the worst of times when other people are running for the hills. So as anyone who's listened to Emmett will know, it's the investments that he's making right now, including some that he mentioned at the last Horizon meetup, that he believes will have the best chance of achieving those exponential growth and gains over the next few years. So in light of so many of you getting in touch with us, we've actually decided to offer 50 Stock Club listeners today a very special discount to come and join Horizon. We've never done a discount like this before for Stock Club, but we're so confident that right now is the best time to be in Stock Investor that we're opening up 50 spots for Horizon for a 40% discount on our full price. So whether you're paying in euros, dollars, pounds, whatever currency you're paying in, that's a lot of money saved. It's very simple to avail of this. All you need to do is follow the link in the notes for today's show. Create a free My Wall Street account if you don't already have one. It only takes a few seconds to set up. You'll then be directed to the checkout page of Horizon and the 40% discount will already be applied. Alternatively, if you don't want to follow that link, you can just go to mywallstreet.com forward slash about forward slash Horizon. Click the Join Horizon button on that page and then input the discount code Horizon40. That's H-O-R-I-Z-O-N-4-0. 
at the checkout and you'll be able to avail of that 40% discount. Remember, we're only opening this up 50 spots to Stock Club listeners this time around. So once those spots are gone, they are gone. So make sure to move fast on that. Mike and Marie haven't <laughs> said hello to you guys yet. I was so busy talking about Horizon. Let's get straight into things. So one of the big stories from the last week is DraftKings. DraftKings stock popped off rumours of a potential deal uh, with the King of Sports in America, ESPN, last week. Uh, neither party has commented on this speculation uh, and there are no details of what this partnership would kind of entail if it was to happen. But DraftKings investors seem particularly excited about the news. There is precedent to this story too, of course. So ESPN is owned by Disney. Disney CEO Bob Chapek recently came out and said that the sports network is critical to his overall vision for the company. And I quote, sports betting is part of what our younger, say under 35 sports audience is telling us they want as part of their sports lifestyle. Mike, for some strange reason, whenever I think of DraftKings, I always think of you. I think it's because you worked in a bookie shop before. Uh, I want to touch in on ESPN first here because I often feel like ESPN is is part of Disney's empire that's kind of forgotten about. You know, when we talk about Disney on this podcast, we're usually talking about Disney Plus. I think we mentioned Disney's cruises last week. We never really talk about ESPN. So can you kind of give us, maybe even us here on this side of the Atlantic, an idea of how big ESPN is in terms of audience? Whew. Take a breath, James. That was, <laughs> <Andrew>. <laughs> that was a big tirade. Fair play to you. Um, yeah, so ESPN. It's interesting that you say that you kind of forget about it because there's actually a lot of talk of Disney spinning it off. Or okay, yeah. So, so I, I actually also think it's, if not forgotten about, at least underutilized. Um, yeah, there's an argument to be made that they were just printing cash off making Marvel movies and everything. Why would they? <laughs> you know, why would they do anything else? Yeah, but it's really interesting to to read up on. So it's. It's huge. It's it's the most popular cable network by a distance. Some stats here from Q1 of this year, and it, the viewership for daytime viewership was up 32% year over year, and for primetime viewership was up 40% year over year. This is the best figures the network has posted since 2017. So in spite of like streaming and everything else, viewership mm. is actually increasing. And I think there's something more to that there in that they say that the kind of only defensive streaming is live sport and live news and ESPN in America is live sport. I know there's a lot of other coverage, but that is the kind of preeminent name there. So I think that's kind of in the back of Disney's mind and especially Bob Chapek. I think Bob Chapek has this unenviable role of, of kind of following Bob Iger and getting Mm. out of his shadow a little bit. And he mentioned, you mentioned it there that he sees ESPN as being kind of critical in his, in his view of the business as a whole. So I, I kind of see him almost being tactical in the sense of, oh, well, ESPN was kind of forgotten about under Iger. Mm. So I'm going to elevate it. This could be his legacy kind of play. Yeah, a little bit. Like, as in, this is his way of getting out from under the shadow. So as you said, why would Bob Iger bother if he was just printing cash doing silly superhero movies? But there is a serious kind of, there's a serious business opportunity here. And in, in Two senses. So the first is that it is the dominant name in kind of cable TV. I think for, oh, sorry, in the target uh, demographic of adults from 18 to 49, ESPN was ahead of the second place network by 74% in daytime viewership and 111% in primetime viewership. So it just shows kind of how important it is in terms of like, cable networks and you know direct tv is just praying that espn is front and center of disney's plans because that's how big of an impact it has on 
terrestrial, well, I call it terrestrial TV watching, cable TV watching, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Then in terms of kind of the streaming angle, ESPN Plus has about 23 million subscribers. It's grown this at 53% year over year. Over year. Yeah. At 10 quid a month, that's, that's far from nothing. And I know it's a small part of Disney and Disney Plus's overall kind of direct consumer business, but but it has it has potential to kind of elevate the whole and maybe bring live sports into streaming in a legitimate way. Because like mm. Amazon just spent Amazon just spent eleven billion quid getting Thursday night football exclusive rights. Like that just shows why how much live sports is worth to streamers and to like any kind of any kind of content at all i suppose so yeah espn having this is our disney having espn is, is massive yeah and like espn like you talked about amazon there like from again from st- sitting on this side of the atlantic looking over to america like espn seems nearly like a cultural phenomenon phenomenon in america like it's it's really well established and it's also there it is growing massively i think i read an article there recently about you know there's all the the kind of resurgence and in interest in formula one recently as well and espn is showing that and, and that was a massive boost to its viewership figures as well let's pull this conversation a bit back towards DraftKings, though so you know espn is is the the streaming service the cable service the the place where sports are shown how how could you imagine or, or how could you envisage DraftKings fitting in uh with espn in terms of a partnership yeah, so interestingly, Disney already owns about 5% of DraftKings. Okay. It inherited it uh, from the Fox acquisition. So there's already an established relationship there, and, and DraftKings has already has a content partnership of some sort with ESPN Online. But the, what this deal is purporting to is a much bigger kind of combined entity, I suppose. So mm. uh, in the last quarter's earning call, JPEG, he was talking about sports books and he was talking about what you mentioned about kind of that target market and what they want from sports. So he said, we're working hard on an integrated sports book. We hope to have something to announce in the future in terms of a partnership there that allows to access that revenue stream and also make sure that our guests are having their needs met. So I think when we talk about ESPN and elevating it, sports betting is definitely an important aspect of that. Mm. And then last Friday about... Last Friday, DraftKings popped about 9% on the rumor that Disney had chosen it as a betting partner. Now, it's important to note that this hasn't been confirmed yet. It's basically educated speculation. But Bloomberg reported that a large new partnership deal was close to being completed. The potential for this and like kind of what you see the combination being is huge. I think especially for DraftKings, it's always the smaller company that's kind of going to benefit more. Mm. But you can imagine betting odds on broadcasts, integrating the sports book is into ESPN Plus, programming dedicated to betting. So it already has some form of content around kind of betting and odds and all the rest. But you could really see this being an integral part of what people go to ESPN for, like, you know, previews, uh, expert opinions, all the rest. So I think the possibilities are fairly endless. I think the greatest potential, though, and I've always said this about sports books and live betting in America, or sorry, sports books and betting in America is the concept of live betting. And DraftKings CAO uh, Jason Robbins has, has said that this is one of his big goals to really bring it in as well. But I leave, I, I think US sports in particular, there's such an opportunity here for yeah. live betting because there's so much tension and buildup and, and everyone is aware of the importance of that exact moment, if that makes sense. So mm. if you compare sports over here that are much more flowing, like football or rugby, 
live betting isn't really as applicable because there isn't that time that stop start nature but in the nfl basketball baseball yeah they all build up to these to these moments well at least close games and everything so yeah everyone is acutely aware you could be betting on the next play essentially there's there's time enough to do that exactly and everyone's acutely aware of how important that next play is as Mm. well like if it's fourth and goal in the nfl or there's two seconds on the shot clock or it's bottom of the ninth the whole game can hinge on that very moment okay if you have the option to bet there and then on espn plus or whatever it is i think the potential for that it could be game over it could go well past what we see in terms of the uk and european bookmakers and i think it could really elevate elevate that industry as a whole and i think that's that's kind of what's attracted me to the betting industry in america it hasn't exactly played out like that yet but the potential is definitely there well with so much optimism mike i'm going to take a big pin now and burst your bubble because yeah. i think what a lot of us here in ireland forget is how fragmented gambling is in the u.s and the fact that it's completely illegal in some states i want to go to california because there's an impending vote on proposition 27 which will essentially is a vote on allowing online and mobile sports betting to occur in the in the um in the state of California, outside of Na- Native American tribal lands, where I believe that's the only place it can happen currently. How big of a deal? And DraftKings are involved in the kind of pushing of this through, obviously enough, it would be huge for their business. Uh, from kind of some some light research I've done, it doesn't look like people are going to go for this Proposition 27. How big of a deal would this be for DraftKings if it was to go through? And, and in general, how big of a challenge is this kind of, I suppose, state-by-state um laws on gambling for a company like DraftKings. Yeah, so DraftKings uh, CEO Jason Robbins, he came out this week to say he doesn't really expect the bill to pass on, and he doesn't see gambling in California until at least 2024, which is a setback. It's, yeah. it's kind of, it feels like a bit of a surrender, kind of the way he said it and stuff in a way is the vote's happening next month, but apparently there's huge spend on the other side. I'm not sure where that's coming from, but potentially casino owners and the Native American gambling computer protecting their ends. I'm not sure, but mm. but it's also a sen- there's a sense also of well, it doesn't happen this year; it'll happen next year. And he kind of called it an, an inevitability. And you know, California is the largest state in America by population. I think if you see something like this with each state around it gaining great tax revenue and a, a lot of citizens wanting that to happen, I do agree with the kind of inevitability factor. But yeah. But that being said, delaying it a year or however long it ends up being is a hit to DraftKings and it's a hit to the to the industry in general. You know, that would have potentially been its largest market at 40 million, I think, people. So you're looking at that. And then what happens a lot in America is that a lot of other states take their dues from California. So they okay, might be yeah. waiting for their example to follow. This, this happens a lot more than you think. So there was a re- California brought in the recent ban on um combustion engines for cars and they're going full electric in production wise so they're saying that was so significant because california is the largest state but also because an awful lot of states follow suit from california's actions so yeah so not only does it being delayed affect california and potentially biggest market but it also may affect a number of other states that might have followed suit too yeah so hopefully for DraftKings and for investors we don't see too much of a delay but i think What's important about this is it exposes a kind of fallacy we fall into investing. Um, and I'm not sure how to describe this perfectly, but you know when there's a very clear pathway established, that's that that's immediately set in stone. So like gambling was online gambling was legalized uh, federally, 
and we saw the success in New Jersey and wherever else. And it was like, oh, this makes complete sense. The investment thesis is completely locked in as state by state open. Yeah, up. yeah. And I think it, it happened. It was really obvious with uh, marijuana stocks and the kind of hype there. But no one really questions at the time the difficulty and the execution involved in kind of that plan going according to plan. You know, the execution yeah. matters. So it's just something to watch in the future when you get caught up in the kind of hype cycle that just because something can happen and it makes sense doesn't mean it will or it doesn't mean that it goes swimmingly. And I think this is a perfect example of that. Yeah, you see it in so many industries. There was, you know, weed stocks. There was the alternative meat industry, alternative dairy industry, you know, good ideas, electric vehicles, even to to an extent a few years ago. You know, when you see a, a trend coming, you want to get in and, and usually invest in the company that's probably maybe usually the only company in that industry, like a Beyond Meat or a Tesla. But it can take a long, long time for, for the other kind of parts of the puzzle to fall into place for it to gain enough traction and gain enough ground to, to really get going. And Marie, I'm curious, uh, you know, as someone who's lived in America and in Ireland, what do you think of, I suppose, the, the growth of gambling and the, the acceptance of gambling in America? And especially compared to, I suppose, a more, more mature market over here. I still think the American market is, is definitely developing. I think there are always going to be people in the United States, I would say particularly people who follow like college football, maybe, who will always be opposed to gambling. I think they would okay. see it as... I don't know, like infringing on the purity of sports or something like that. Sacrilegious. Yeah, like they're like, oh, if you involve gambling, it, it obviously, it, everything is ruined essentially. Because mm, um, mm. I think they're very much like, oh, people should should watch sports for the love of the game kind of. But at the same time, like I remember reading comments from MGM's uh, online gambling segment, the head of that, he, he discussed the fact that when they look at like watch metrics for games involving gambling. People are more engaged because obviously mm. they're doing what Mike was talking about. They're they're betting live. So then it does mean that, you know, you can be in the middle of the third quarter of an absolutely boring football game. But for those two plays that maybe you have managed to place a bet, that's all that matters in that moment. Yeah. So I don't know. It'll be very interesting to see how things unfold. Um, I think we're at like 30 states are legalized now. So I'd say there'll probably be some maybe in more conservative areas that will never legalize. And that's just be something you have to deal with. I know in Colorado, which is where my parents live, uh, they were quite early to legalize. And it's now like everybody's nightmare because they have quite an open market there. And now virtually every form of advertising is just inundated with yeah. gambling companies trying to get your attention and trying to get you to sign up. And it's funny because here in Ireland, where there's discussions about the banning ad- gambling advertising, especially around sports events. So um, yeah, it's interesting to see kind of two flip sides of, of the same industry. Let's move on then. Uh, Anne-Marie, while I'm talking to you a few weeks ago, you spoke on this podcast about the difficulties that chip makers were facing thanks to the Ethereum merge, which I think I understand now <laughs> after your explanation. But essentially what it was doing is reducing the dependency that cryptocurrency and, and the people who were mining these cryptocurrencies had on high-powered chip uh, and those those manufactured by the likes of NVIDIA. Over the last couple of days and weeks, we've seen another challenge facing the industry, which is that the US authorities have introduced new export controls that will essentially ban US companies from exporting critical chip manufacturing tools to China. Ostensibly, this is a measure to slow down Chinese technological advancements, but of course, it will really impact upon chip making companies like AMD, Intel, NVIDIA, as I mentioned already. Looking at the chip industry over the past few months, Henry, there's been quite a few setbacks. How big of a deal is this latest restriction on the wider industry? I think this move in particular is going to impact the two companies you mentioned, NVIDIA and um, AMD, 
it's quite significant when we talk about advanced chips. So that's what we're talking about, chips that are dedicated to AI. And it's like you said, the reason they're preventing the export of these chips and the components needed to manufacture them um, is to prevent this technology from getting in the hands of pretty much just the Chinese government. Um, It's kind of, you know, a a part of the wider strategy the United States seems to be using um, in terms of creating, I guess what we could call like a tech cold war between the United States and and China. And the main reason there seems to be a hesitancy about allowing these chips to go to China is under the Biden administration, they have raised concerns that they have seen through uh, intelligence, I believe, that they're being used for military purposes. So these AI chips are really important um, when it comes to running advanced simulations for military exercises. But particularly uh, nuclear weapons. So the United States is, is obviously concerned about this technology getting into Chinese hands. The kind of short and long term of it is it, it, it does mean that this ban effectively will leave NVIDIA and AMD in a completely isolated environment so that they will temporarily have effectively no competition. They'll just be each other battling for this kind of very advanced market space of, of, of AI chips. The only kind of downside to this is, is this has actually happened before between the United States and China. They have previously mm. banned certain types of chips from being exported to China, and it, it doesn't really work. So the U.S. embargoed Intel chips from going to specific places in China several years ago. The reason that happened was the United States didn't want China developing high-performance computers, but it happened anyway because the Chinese just began developing those chips themselves. They had to yeah. like put in the work and the research, but in a couple of years, they had caught up. And so now it's this thing of, oh, we've created this temporary environment for uh, NVIDIA and AMD to have no competition. But I guarantee there are startups in China, and we're already aware of companies in China that are developing this technology independently. Yeah. So, you know, we've we've kind of put a pause on things for a little bit, but it, it's, it's still down the line. It could mean that actually NVIDIA is going to end up with five new competitors in five years or, or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, when we, you know, you're talking about the short-term troubles there for these companies. On the other hand, you know, over the past while, like we've seen loads of country or industries, including like auto manufacturers, telecoms, loads of different industries are so dependent on things like semiconductors. You know, there's been such a shortage in the in the motor industry of, of semiconductors recently. So, the, you know, we need more and more of these chips. But, you know, there seems to be that maybe this artificial constriction going on, but other tr- troubles for these companies as well as the Ethereum merges. Do you see these sh- like all of these recent events as just short-term blips for an overall expanding industry or are they something that we we should be a bit more concerned about? Yeah, so the shortage in semiconductors is kind of more so covered by the CHIPS Act that Congress passed a couple months ago. And that's essentially a $52 billion package the United States created to incentivize companies to move their chip manufacturing, particularly like semiconductor chips back to the United States Mm. um, or even to the United States um, for the first time. So semiconductors would be like less sophisticated in comparison to like NVIDIA's AI chip, for example. Okay. Um, And I think like that's going to be pretty much great for like U.S. manufacturing, um, but actually probably global manufacturing. I think the pandemic kind of showed us that there's a significant centralization in terms of manufacturing. It's like the vast majority, 70 or 80 percent of semiconductors in the world are manufactured in Taiwan. Like that's a tremendous concentration. And, you know, if we have shipping issues that are prolonged and those semiconductors cannot get into the United States where they need to be put into a car, it's going to clog up virtually every every form of manufacturing you could imagine. So it is... It's definitely a blip that we will be ironing out, but I think in some ways it's actually creating a more dynamic market because it is encouraging companies to decentralize Mm. and to say, right, okay, we cannot have all of our manufacturing in this one location. Some of it needs to go to the United States. Some of it must go to Europe simply because, you know, 
what happens if there's another COVID, but we end up controlling it and it only ends up in certain countries and they go into lockdown and all of a sudden, again, we have this horrible issue of we can't get semiconductors out of Taiwan. What are we supposed to do? So I think that that is kind of a necessary burden that we have to deal with right now. But I think in the long term, it should actually be quite beneficial to kind of ironing out the supply chain issues. Okay, interesting. Thanks for that. Uh, Okay, let's move on. Uh, And just before we move on, I want to remind you all of the exclusive discount that we're giving away to 50 Stock Club listeners to join Horizon. It's the biggest discount I think we've ever put on Horizon. Allow more of you to join us on this journey, which is a huge 40% off our full price. All you need to do is follow the links in the notes for today's show, create a free My Wall Street account if you don't already have one. You'll be directed directly to the checkout page with the discount code already applied. Alternatively, you can just go to mywallstreet.com forward slash about forward slash horizon and use the, inc- the discount code horizon40. That's H O R I Z O N 40 at checkout to get that discount. I also remind you guys that Stocktober is still running too. So every day in October, we're posting a new 60 second stock pitch video across all of our social media channels. These pitches give you all the basics you need to know about a selection of publicly listed companies that you can invest in right now. Some of them on the My Wall Street shortlist, some of them not on the My Wall Street shortlist. We've covered companies like Olaplex, Salesforce, Zillow, MasterCard so far. So make sure to follow us across Twitter, TikTok or YouTube and don't miss out on any of our Stocktober pitches. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mailbag. Anne-Marie, we have a mailbag question for you today. Um, so we're only in October, but many analysts and investors are like already are, are already looking towards the key holiday season to see how it's going to pan out for retailers. Uh, needless to say, the last few holiday seasons have been pretty odd, what with COVID and a global pandemic and all of that. But you know, we're we're kind of maybe moving a little bit more towards normality in terms of diseases, but a lot of other pressures on, on the market at the moment. What do you think will be one of the biggest trends or one of the biggest things to watch out to, out for, particularly for retailers this uh, this holiday season? Yeah, I, I guess the big trend that we're going to see is, is discounting, discounting and, and more discounting. It's going to be a great holiday season if you are a shopper and probably a terrible <laughs> one if you're an investor. It's looking like so pretty much across the board, companies are just dealing with an excess of merchandise of all sorts. And it's it's not just like having way too much stuff. It's that it's the wrong stuff. So we heard about both okay. Nike and Gap reporting that they only received their shipments of shorts and T-shirts for the summer last month. So oh, wow. it's, it's too late. So now they're in this position of they either have to store it for a full year or they need to sell it at a discount now for Christmas. And this like isn't just clothing companies. We've actually heard from place, from an Amazon warehouse in Nashville. One of their managers gave a quote, quote to the Wall Street Journal in which she said that their entire warehouse is full of puffy jackets that were meant to be sold last winter that ended up showing up in the spring. And now they have aisles and aisles of bug spray that were meant to be sold in the spring and the summer only showed up in the fall. 
Wow. So now all these companies are in quite difficult positions of, of how valuable is this shelf space to us and do we need to be turning all of this merchandise over? Just to kind of put some numbers on this, so Foot Locker, Kohl's, and Gap reported inventories up 52%, 48%, and 37% year over year. That's huge. The big one last week was Nike. Their inventory is up 44%, which you really can't have when your sales have been virtually flat year over year. So yeah. difficult so- position. Yeah, so like great, great for shoppers, <laughs> great yeah. for people uh, doing their Christmas shopping. But for for retail or like for the companies themselves, then and I suppose as a knock on for investors, what does that mean? Compress mm-hmm. profit margins. Uh, what what are the other kind of knock on effects of excess in- inventory? Yeah, so it's they're now down to this point of being like, how do we get rid of this stuff? And the only way is discounting. And, and you're correct. It means that there's going to see a huge bite out of margins. Either that or the companies are going to have to make the decision to hold it and mm. hope that all this stuff is still in season next year, which you would maybe get away with. For Nike, for example, there's probably like Sports less story, yeah. trends and stuff like that for sportswear. But I don't know, for Amazon, there could be huge trend shifts over the next 12 months and they could be stuck with all this stuff. Yeah. So you do have to kind of look out for that, particularly any kind of, of retailer. I mean, we've seen it. I think our kind of first indication was Target and Walmart. So it's pretty much anyone who is a retailer at this point. The kind of one notable exception, the kind of glimmer was Macy's, shockingly enough, who I have <laughs> never considered to be a limber and thoughtful uh, business. But apparently they are really good at tracking their credit card data. And they, at the beginning of the year, noticed that shoppers were slowing down in terms of spending. And it meant that they began pausing their inventory orders. They were like, "Uh uh-oh. I don't think that this massive demand that we saw in 2020 and 2021 is going to keep up. So uh, in their last quarter, Macy's inventory is only up 7%. So they actually kind of managed to 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 skip this issue. So um, it kind of is something that you need to look on an independent basis. You need to go in. You know, if you happen to own stock in Nike or Under Armour, you need to go in and have a read and see what their inventory is like. I think it's also worth comparing as well to what their sales look like. You know, so mm. if... Nike's inventory is up 44%, but they have a 30% sales increase. Maybe it's fine. You know, like maybe yeah. they're bringing in excess inventory to cover an increase in sales demand. So yeah, the kind of great exception to this trend is luxury <laughs> items, which I'm sure we all are buying this holiday season, simply because uh, luxury companies tend to not place massive inventory orders. You know, their whole thing is to create this finite resource. They want people to wait around a couple months. Like Hermes traditionally makes mm. you wait months and months to get a bag. So they've kind of skipped this issue and actually sales are up uh, kind of across all luxury sectors. So if you're lucky enough to own some luxury stock, you might be doing all right this uh, holiday season. But it's actually quite an interesting topic, the idea of these companies being agile enough to skip this issue. Um, yeah. It's something I've been looking into because the stock of the month I'm actually interested in for maybe next month that I'm thinking of pitching is a company that might have, have skipped this inventory issue, but is still a consumer goods uh, maker. So so, keep so, a lookout so for that. not Macy's. No, it will not be Macy's. Could you imagine if I just added it to the to the short list and then immediately made it stock of the month? Um, yeah. So I think I'm going to do a full write up on this issue and, yeah. and uh, talk about the great exceptions for Monday. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, keep an eye out for that in the the my Wall Street app next Monday. It sounds really interesting. Okay, guys, let's move on to the elevator pitch then to finish out today's show. So, uh, Mike, what company are you pitching me today? The company I am pitching you today is Palo Alto Networks. So okay. I've been banging the cybersecurity drum now for a while, and it's a company I'm really interested in. It's slightly older, more established company compared to a lot of kind of the industry peers. Uh, it was launched in 2005. It's been on the public markets for more than a decade. And at time, it's kind of established itself as the de facto leader in the network security space. Um, it pioneered uh, next generation firewalls and since then it has expanded into cloud security 
security operations. It's not as fast moving or as sexy as a CrowdStrike or a Sentinel one, but I, I like the business. It's okay. one of these more mature industry stalwarts. Okay. Interesting. Palo Alto Networks. Anne-Marie, what company are you pitching me? And do not say some other packaged cake. No. I went looking to try and find one, but I, I couldn't find one that was publicly traded, unfortunately. Um, I am kind of on a bit of a vintage kick, though, at the minute. So I decided to go and have a look at Levi's. Okay. A company we, we all know. They're such a recognizable brand. They're actually the market leader in men's jeans in pretty much every significant market across the globe. They are also having inventory issues at the minute. Their inventory <laughs> is up 43%, unfortunately. So it's not their month. But um, I was kind of like, I'm kind of in a mood to like go back and look at these companies that have stood the test of time and kind of see, you know, or could we be picking up some deals here? Market cap of $5 billion, $6.5 billion in annual sales. Uh, PDE right now is a nine, which is a bit low. So it's, you know, maybe a bit of an opportunity. Only thing is their sales growth is pretty meh, you know, a couple yeah. percentage points a, a quarter. But you know, kind of tried and tested brands. They pay a pretty decent annual dividend of 2.8%. They're planning a big stock buyback this year. They're down 40% so far this year. I don't know. It might be a little little diamond in the rough. They were kind of a recent IPO for such an old company, no? Yeah, they yeah. IPO'd, I think, in like 2019, 2020, yeah. somewhere around there. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a fan of a pair of Levi's myself now, but I think I've yeah. I've had it, uh, had it to my back teeth with inventory for one episode. So, Mike... <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna go with uh with Palo Alto Networks. Um and let let's start this conversation. As you said, you know, you've you've been kind of on a, a cybersecurity train for the last few weeks. And and one of the things with cybersecurity or one of the challenges I suppose investors have is that there's so many different types of security needed in, in the cyberspace and so many different solutions. Can you just talk briefly about that and maybe kind of position Palo Alto in in that kind of that 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 kind of grid with you know CrowdStrike and other ones you've mentioned. Yeah. So I'm gonna do a bit of an Emmet here and uh, and not answer <laughs> my question. I don't know I will come back to it eventually, but I just want to do my little tangent first if that's okay. Okay, go for it. <laughs> I did this last week too, don't worry. Yeah, I yeah no, it it's it's a really common uh, there's no point fun. in me being here. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I always like to kind of start a conversation um with cybersecurity companies by stats because i think okay. there is an argument that even though it's such a developed industry and it's been around for so long we're still very early on in terms of wide scale adoption at least at least to the extent that businesses should be protected if that makes yeah. sense so yes businesses spend money on cybersecurity but are they fully protected and are they actually covered as they should be like as if this is insurance they'd be underinsured kind of way. Mm, okay so 41 percent of executives don't think their security in initiatives have kept up with their digital transformation that would be a very common thing now if you're talking about hybrid working models and remote workers and everything else yeah. only 50 percent of small and medium businesses have a cybersecurity plan in place 50 which means 50 percent don't 43 percent of companies feel financially prepared to face a cyber attack in 2022 which means 57 percent don't cyber criminals can now penetrate 93 percent of company networks wow. and the number of weekly attacks in 2021 grew 50 percent year over year so when you kind of i think this is a very timely company to talk about because there was just a major hack uh, a bunch of u.s airports on monday did you hear mm -hmm. about this yeah i didn't hear about this no yeah, and obviously we're coming off the back. We were talking about Take Two and Uber on this podcast about a month ago as yeah, well. Yeah, um, we were talking about uh, your man Mudge Zacko <laughs> for the the head of security for Twitter, and and that's where the mind goes when you hear cyber attack. It's it's these wide scale public company breaches or you know a headline grabbing threat to major infrastructure. But 
the average attack might be a quick in and out job on your local insurance office or college or dentist, you know? Mm. These types of attacks aren't sexy, but they're they're efficient and they're making hackers billions. It was yeah. reported uh last year that cyber attacks cost US companies six point nine billion dollars. And that's in, in blackmail and then obviously blackmail recovery and, yeah. 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 So okay. so now on to your question. Um, <laughs> so Palo Alto Networks. It describes itself, and this is a good one, I think, um, as the zero trust network security platform that secures a world where users can work anywhere without restrictions. Okay. It sounds pretty handy, considering there's three of us on a Zoom call here from three different <laughs> in, locations. In three different locations. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And then according to Morningstar, it actually sells into all the Fortune 100 companies and more than three quarters of the global 2000 companies. It's a global, it's a market leader in network security as network security demands about 20 to 25% of security budgets as a whole. So if you think network security and you think zero trust architecture, you're trying to protect. And we're thinking of our own very small startup here. But if you can imagine a company like Intel with 100,000 employees across the world, Mm. if you're trying to protect that network, that's kind of how you should think of the scale of a Palo Alto Networks. It's built from software and hardware firewalls, which I think you kind of should be somewhat familiar with in terms of firewalls. I think everyone had the old McAfee on their boot up computer back in the day. <laughs> this is a very advanced version of that. And it's also expanding into a new architecture called <laughs> Sassy. Oh, um, nice. <laughs> yeah, which is, stands for Secure Access Service Edge. And it's a growing trend in the industry. And it's seen as kind of a way of delivering zero trust networks for kind of cloud-based technologies. So a sassy architecture uh, <laughs> will t- we'll, we'll talk back to you. Um, I, I will never take that seriously. If anyone's talking <laughs> yeah. about sassy architecture. <laughs> yeah, but it identifies users, devices, and then it'll apply the kind of policy-based security and deliver secure access to the appropriate application or data. So if you're signing in from wherever... It vets you, it lets you in, and it does mm. this every time. It kind of it allows organizations to to provide access to their users or their applications or devices wherever they're located. So okay. it's ideal for this kind of growing distributed workforce that's becoming more and more common now. Yeah. Well, you mentioned there kind of in your intro that these are kind of the, the OGs of, of cybersecurity. I can see here defended in 2005, so 17 years on the go. And you know, there's lots of other companies at the moment, maybe specializing in different things. But how, in terms of the specific area of cybersecurity Palo Alto are in, you know, how much of the market do they have? How dominant are they compared to, I suppose, competitors or, or within the industry in, in as a whole? So. Their competitors are interesting because they're the more old school companies. So you're looking at Cisco, okay, Checkpoint Software, FireEye. You remember FireEye from uh, the big hack? Was it about two years ago? I think it was a Russian hack on like uh, U.S. security systems and stuff. Okay, yeah. So they, these are, I think, network security as a whole is a bit more of an established space compared to endpoint security, which is much more up and coming. That's where mm. CrowdStrike and Sentinel One would specialize in, mm. and actually. Palo Alto has a uh, offering in its uh, security operations or SecOps sector that is branching into this, but it's far from its core competency. So network security is kind of more of an established uh, area in the total business. It says it says it could take up to a quarter of security budgets. And if you put the cybersecurity industry at about 130 billion a year, 
you're looking at about 40, 43 billion dollars, we'll say, okay. roughly. This is very back of the napkin maths. And so Palo Alto took in 5.5 billion last year. So you do the maths there. They have a pretty impressive market share in terms of in terms of network security. And I think it's it's growing in different areas. So this sassy, which is kind of <laughs> where it's really putting its money. The number of customers who spent over one million dollars here in 2019 was at 27. By the end of 2022, this figure grew to 210. Okay. Um, so in fact, SASE customers are the fastest growing customer cohort. They grew 51% in uh, the fiscal year 2022 to over three and a half thousand. So there is, there's a lot of technical aspects to this business that I'm still learning. And it's, I wouldn't say interesting, but it is, <laughs> it's definitely worth knowing. But it, it's fascinating because from their strength in network security, they've been able to pivot and they've launched a cloud security platform as well. And they've also launched a uh, security operations platform, which I mentioned. So, and, and do they ever think any of these kind of new areas will ever overtake the network security or, or become larger? Or will they always kind of be rooted mainly or for the foreseeable rooted mainly in the network security? Yeah, so I have it here. Give me a second. So yeah, at the end of 2018, Palo Alto made 8% of its revenue, total revenue from this away from network security. Yeah. At the end of 22, it made 38%. So you can see okay, how it's wow. becoming a much more important aspect of the business. At that time, at the end of 2018, it was a recognized leader in one category. At the end of 22, it was a recognized leader in 11 categories. So you can see that this expansion beyond its core competency has provided dividends. Yeah, absolutely. It seems to be good growth there. You know, when you kind of look at it then from maybe digging into more broadly financial view, what's it looking like? What's overall revenue growth and things looking like for the company? Yeah, numbers wise, we're in pretty good shape. Grew revenue 29% last year, took in 5.5 billion. It just turned a net profit by generally accepted accounting principles, (laughs) practices, by a gap basis which isn't much to shout about for a $47 billion company until you realize that it gave away about a billion quid in stock bank, stock-based compensation that year. Okay. It's also promised to grow margins, deliver 25% revenue growth, and achieve gap profitability for the upcoming year as well, okay. which is good of them. Yeah. But um, <laughs> what's, what's really enticing about this business is the amount of cash it generates, and I, I kind of couldn't really believe its margins. So on an adjusted basis, it had a 31% free cash flow margin last year, which was about 1.7 billion quid. Mm. For 2023, it's expanding this to 34%, which would mean free cash flow will come in at about $2.4 billion, which wow. isn't bad. But yeah, it's great to earn all this cash. What is it doing with it? I suppose what's interesting about this business is where it puts this cash, and it's mostly in the form of acquisitions. Yeah, and I wouldn't really be a fan of this normally, but I think cybersecurity is a very consolidative industry. There is a lot of these bolt-on smaller acquisitions. And what Palo Alto is doing is not what you'd call diversification and going into another branch where it doesn't have expertise. It's staying very focused in that there's a lot of just buying bolt-on functionality. So you're buying up small competitors who might specialize in a very specific brand of log monitoring or whatever it may be, and then yeah. encapsulating that into the wider platform. So then you have an... I do feel, sorry to cut across, but I feel it, it's it's a very 
it's a very common characteristic of the cybersecurity industry. Um, and again, it goes back to maybe that first question I asked. It's such a diverse and fragmented and there's so many different solutions needed for so many different companies that instead of companies trying to you know reinvent the wheel themselves every time, that sometimes it is just better to buy up these very, very specific solutions to be able to offer their customers these these different uh, products as you know their use case uh, requires. A hundred percent. I think, um, was it Forbes? Can't remember where I found it, but it was uh, an article and it said that a CISO, so a chief information security officer, may deal with between 60 and 80 vendors. Wow. And yeah, which is not sounds and, like hell. Yeah. And you got to take into account the training that's involved with these, the staff to cover yep. it, you know, all the expertise involved in learning a new tool and everything else. And obviously they want to reduce that greatly. Um, and that's where something like Palo Alto with this bundling and upselling becomes such an attractive prospect because they cover so many different aspects and because they have these little, oh, you can tack on this for an extra you know, 5% and it'll cover log monitoring and you don't have to pay for the separate company and the separate logins and mm. the separate training and everything else. Yeah. So that's where the smaller acquisitions come in handy. But there's another uh, aspect of them as well, is that it negates the risk of disruption from the kind of more nimble one product specialists. By buying up these smaller competitors, you kind of stymie their growth and you don't let them become a true competitor. Yeah. You can just have them within your own landscape, especially for a large company like Palo Alto, which can hoover up these smaller fries. It's got two billion in cash coming in every year. So, uh, Mike, I suppose as we get to the end, what are you know? This sounds like a pretty good company. What are the risks, if any, that you see? There's always the perennial risk with any cybersecurity company of what happens if it gets hacked itself. And yeah. we saw that with uh, FireEye. Um, that mm. can be absolutely devastating. I would be concerned about competitors. I think it is a very competitive industry. George Kurtz, the CrowdStrike CEO, recently came out saying he's not going anywhere near network security, which is a good thing to hear, but with both companies kind of expanding so aggressively in terms of uh, capabilities and products, there is going to be like an encroachment. Uh, uh, Palo Alto's security operations already looks into endpoint security. So I do see competitive uh, threats from from the kind of younger, faster moving companies because Palo Alto is this yeah. long established stalwart in the industry. Yeah. In terms of the wider macro environment, Maybe it's not the best time to be pitching a stock that's trading at a price-to-sales ratio almost in the double digits and <laughs> turned a profit for the first time in four years. But I'd push back down on a bit. I'd push back on that a bit. Um, I talked in the CrowdStrike Stock of the Month piece on how cybersecurity is going to fare a lot better than the rest of a lot of enterprise tech in yeah. an economic downturn. And this kind of, it's not a choice. It's not a discretionary spend in hmm. terms of cybersecurity uh, expenses. And while it isn't, while it was barely profitable, the company is actually incredibly profitable if you get the non-cash expense of stock-based compensation. So there is a bit of, there's a bit of, uh, I suppose, insulation there in hmm. terms of the wider macro uh, environment right now. So that's actually a plus, I would say. Okay. Okay, so... Go to the traffic lights, Mike. What are you giving it? A red, an orange, or a green? Pretty green, I think. Okay. I need to dig in a bit deeper, but I, I think it's a stock that's got a lot of potential. It could be in the app soon. Who knows? Oh, interesting. What, Anne-Marie, what are your thoughts? I'm kind of the same, probably yellow to green. I always have a bit of an issue with these companies, though, when I 
think I'm probably not alone of like I when I like pitch companies or want to put them in the app I want to like specifically understand all of their products and sometimes when you get into cybersecurity companies you'll be reading something and you'll be like well I read the words off the page but I'm yeah. not 100% <laughs> sure what they mean um yeah, and I think I that's can just relate to that right now after two days looking at this company yeah. <laughs> Well, uh, it's just kind of a comfort level thing but i think like if i yeah sat down and did the reading and was yeah. um well, yeah, just I think be more versed to be comfortable with it especially with this like high level tech you can be forgiven to kind of resorting to the experts yeah at yeah. certain points you know you look at like gartner and forrester wave and and and, and see kind of i almost rely on um People who know what they're doing. Exactly, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's Mike's pitch for Palo Alto Networks and that's it for today's show. Uh, Remember, if you have any questions you'd like us to answer on future episodes of Stock Club or elevator pitches you'd like us to tackle, make sure to get in touch. You can find us on Twitter, that's at MyWallStreetHQ, on TikTok, that's at MyWallStreet, or simply just email us at pod at MyWallStreet.com. That's P-O-D at MyWallST.com. If you're enjoying Stock Club, make sure to tell your friends about us and don't forget to leave a review or a rating for us on whatever platform you listen to us on. Thanks for joining us today, and from the three of us here, we'll talk to you next week. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.